the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider of choice. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at The Next Nationalism on Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have John Halpin in the house. He's co-editor of an excellent Substack newsletter, The Liberal Patriot. John Halpin is a renowned expert on campaigns and elections, political ideology, and public opinion analysis. Over a 20-year career, he's written extensively on voter attitudes about domestic and foreign policy with research featured in publications ranging from the New York Times, Washington Post, Financial Times, and on and on. He also is the co-author of a book called The Power of Progress, How America's Progressives Can Once Again Save Our Economy, Our Climate, and Our Country, a 2008 book about the history and future of the progressive movement. He also has strong academic credentials with an undergraduate degree in government from Georgetown University and an MA in political science from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He lives in Baltimore with his wife and two children. A lot of stuff there, John Halpin. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk through some issues here. Well, please tell us a bit about the liberal patriot. That's an interesting title to begin with. Where did the idea come from and what's your mission? Yeah, the Liberal Patriot um, is a newsletter that uh, I started with three other colleagues, Rui Teixeira, Peter Jewell, and Brian Katulis. We're all long, long-term friends and, and colleagues uh, working on both domestic and uh, international politics. And the reason we started it and gave it the title we did was we thought that there was a need for a new public philosophy, a new approach to politics that was slightly different than the traditional left-right divide, and more importantly, uh, separate from uh, the culture wars of the left and right today. And so our version of this is what we call liberal nationalism. Uh, you could call it liberal patriotism. They're sort of interchangeable. Uh, from a theoretical perspective, <clears throat> liberal nationalism um, is a much more inclusive vision of nationalism. Of course, nationalism has a, a, a nasty history in people's minds, sounds like something exclusionary tied to um, various movements that people don't like, but there's a much more positive um, version, uh, kind of civic nationalism, one that's tied uh, to, in our case, uh, America's founding values, um, economic policies that help everyone succeed, uh, a whole range of things that would, would basically benefit everyone in the country. It's grounded in universal liberal values of equal dignity and rights for all, um, free speech, a uh, variety of different things. So, you know, we wanted to create a place to define liberal nationalism, liberal patriotism, if you will, and hash it out uh, on both the domestic front and on the international front. So that's why we started the, the blog about, we started at the beginning um, of, of Biden's term, right? right when he came into office. So um, we're in our second year now. 
Well, it's a terrific project. Let me ask you a few questions that people often raise with me and I observe. Uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine in the beginning on February 24th of 2022, all of a sudden Ukrainian flags popped up all over social media. And on Twitter, one couldn't help but notice that many Americans sported Ukrainian flags, but not the American flag. What's going on? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, here uh, we thought we had put the the ideological battles of the 20th century behind us, and they came roaring back because of because of Putin. And you know, people rallied to the idea not only of defending a a weaker nation that had been invaded by a much bigger uh, thug, if you will, but basically it was the entire liberal democratic order that had been attacked—a sovereign nation, uh, independent. Had, had you know wanted to be a part of Europe and 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 be integrated in the world, and Putin decided to go after that, and people rallied behind him. It wasn't just because the president is so compelling and charismatic, uh, Zelensky. It's that the idea uh, of liberal democracy was something they wanted defended. And so then you know the question is, well, why don't we put it up uh, on our side? And it's a good one. I mean, people, you know, the American flag is obviously flown by many people, um, but it tends to be um, seen in narrow, if you're not looking at commercial purposes, you get kind of narrow visions from the right on it, and then you get aspects of the left that don't want to defend anything in the American project. And, you know, the bulk of Americans themselves see the flag, and they're very proud. And that's why people line up for the Olympics and things like that when we actually have national competitions and uh, other things like that, or if we're, you know, happen to be in a conflict or at war. Uh, but I think you're right uh, not to ask, you know, to ask why people don't do that more often outside of July 4th or other things like that. And, you know, we're, we're trying in our own way to, to give some meaning to that. Obviously, the American project is a good one. It's longstanding. It's important. It hasn't always been perfect, but it's better than every other alternative in the world. And we should stand up for that and make it better. And I think that's standing up for your flag and for your country. There's a fine book that you're likely very familiar with called Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes by Stephen Smith, a professor at Yale. Mm -hmm. And on the back of that book, there's a blurb from Anne-Marie Slaughter, a Washington, D.C. think tank executive. And the blurb is interesting. She writes, and I quote, it's a brave man who takes on the vital and necessary task of defining and defending patriotism from the left. How do you react to that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's bizarre that, that the left uh, in general is not more aggressively patriotic. I mean, I think part of the problem post-1970 is that various social movements and kind of radical activist parts of the left who are deeply um, uh, bought into the notion that there's something fundamentally wrong with the country, whether it's systemic racism or sexism or um, xenophobia, other things like that. And, you know, that, that loud but minority voice has come to dominate people's perceptions of the left. But if you think more broadly about uh, the center left project of the 20th century. And I, you know, the, our banner is the four freedoms of FDR, which is the best patriotic vision around from my perspective. So freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. That's the American project in a nutshell. And, 
you know, that was also the left. Um, it wasn't the far left, but it was the liberal majority for most of the 20th century. And that's where we, we draw our inspiration from, um, you know, some of the great ideas and, uh, and uh, advances of the, of the Roosevelt era and, you know, the big 20th century successes and defeating fascism and then, you know, standing up and defeating communism. Um, so why more people on the left don't do this? Uh, you know, I don't know. Why would you cede it to the right? You know, there's it, uh, Donald Trump doesn't have a, a, a hold on American patriotism, although he, he pretends to claim so. But um, it, it's just weird to see it. So we're trying to say, look, there's a, a liberal version of this that's grounded in individual rights, that's grounded in national greatness. Um, we accept that there are problems in our history and ongoing today, but part of the liberal American experiment, experiment is to confront those and find ways to resolve them and, so, and make the country better over time. And that fundamentally should be a project uh, of the liberal left. So let's talk for a minute about some of these terms. Patriotism basically means love of country. There's a lot underneath that, but it's a pretty simple thing. And most people use it as a part of their identity, but probably not a fixed part or one that is fundamental. And so you see a lot of other identities today with sports teams or all kinds of commercial mm -hmm. things. It's almost like what's been called love marks, like say the love for Apple products seems somewhere close to patriotism where we are today. I'm not sure patriotism mm -hmm. tells us a lot, but the next term that you already referred to and you've written about very usefully is nationalism. What does nationalism mean to you? My, our vision of nationalism is much more inclusive than the traditional one that gets defined more by the right um, or populist along racial, ethnic, uh, linguistic, religious lines. Like there's there's an exclusive form of nationalism that's that's uh, more prevalent on the right, um, which is sort of the uh, native-born, um, you know, the native language customs, traditions, you see it not just in America, but in other places. The type of nationalism I'm talking about is more like the one you saw in the original progressive era, which is how do we have a commitment to making America succeed and making sure that everybody in the country participates in that and can benefit from it um, in a good way. And so the way we use nationalism is in, a very, in, in an inclusive manner, meaning everybody's in, it's defined on classically liberal terms, um, but it's also about the project itself of uh, pushing aside all the divisions and dumb debates people have to focus on the things that matter mo most in terms of American economic development, um, regional inequalities, a variety of things that affect people equally uh, or in, in a, you know, maybe in differential um, regional ways. These are things that matter to the well-being of the country. It's also combined with an, a, a vision of internationalism that defends America's interests in the world, um, not in a in a Trumpian way, but in a way uh, that's good for our, our our businesses, both small and large. It's good for our workers. It's good for uh, our country's um, environmental stewardship. Um, so it's a nationalism that's not, you know, it, it's not the populist right. It's an inclusive civic nationalism that's focused on pushing away all of the bad culture war politics and focusing on the things that we need to do uh, to better prepare ourselves to, uh, to work in the global economy, 
uh, to make sure that everybody in this country is doing better. Um, so that's our vision of, na of nationalism. One of the definitions of nationalism that I'm sure you're familiar with comes from Benedict Anderson, who talked about nationalism being about imaginary communities shared by peoples who are willing to die for strangers with whom they're co-ventures in this imaginary community. And that definition by its terms could not be viewed per se as a left or right kind of definition. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it's in the, the realm of sort of defending the homeland and, and uh, you know, again, a community that's not your family, it's not even your neighbors. It's, it's a body of people, you know, hundreds of millions who are somewhat disconnected um, in, in a personal way who are fighting for a common understanding uh, of the country. And in our case, it's, it's these basic freedoms. You know, it's the freedom to be who you are, to be left alone, to contribute to the country. Um, it's our constitutional uh, uh, provisions, uh, the things that allow us to prosper uh, collectively. So, yeah, being willing to die. But in a way, I mean, that's it doesn't have to be a martial construct. It's basically, are you willing to um, give a little bit of yourself? It doesn't have to be the ultimate sacrifice necessarily to, to a common project. That's not just about your needs, your self-interest, things like that. And I think that was that's the idea behind civic nationalism that, you know, we're not going to have a nationalism based on um, one race or one religion. We actually reject all of that. The, the, the nationalism we have says anybody can be an American and we welcome you into this project. And, you know, as part of that, you have to help defend our core values and uphold them. And that's the type. I mean, that's what I would prefer to see. Uh, and I think it's a more inclusive form of nationalism. Mm hmm. Let me ask you this. Uh, is it necessary that a nationalism or is it even appropriate that a real American nationalism be viewed as coming from the left or right as opposed to encompassing both? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, uh, the writers at the Liberal Patriot, you know, we tend to come more from the center left, not the left, but that's just our perspective and and we, we focus on that. So we sort of pitch our articles and things to people broadly on that. But most of we are, a lot of our readers are on the center right or, um, or are just independent. And I think for it, for an effective vision of nationalism to work, it has to cover, um, people from both sides of the traditional left, right divisions in, in some ways to find something, um, uh, that's sort of unique to that body of people that's separate from existing ideology. So yes, I, I mean, a big part of what we want to do is try and understand uh, the best ideas. Some of them might be conservative. Some of them might be from the populist left. What are things that ultimately help advance the country and make sure everybody's doing well? Th that's what we want. And I think by definition, it should and, and needs to be um, not a partisan operation because obviously partisan divisions in the country are are preventing what we think is an effective national vision from coming forward and causing most of the problems we have. So yes, nationalism should be something that appeals to people as Americans, um, not as a member of one party or another. Well, let's talk about a few historical figures and get your reaction to help us all think about this. As you referred to in the beginning, 
most people or many people today, when they hear the term nationalist, it's a term of a program or marginalization. They'll say white nationalism, Christian nationalism, black nationalism, something or other nationalism. It's a, it's a term to dismiss, and it seems to be sending people down as some kind of fascist or even national socialist, you know, Hitler at the ultimate, this kind of thing. At the same time, we know from history that there have been a number of nationalisms that, if you're talking left-right, came from the left. In fact, one could argue that a lot of the mistakes America has made over the past 50 or more years in the world has been because we are so reticent and perhaps misunderstand nationalism, we've confused it for other things. So, for example, in Vietnam, mm -hmm. uh, before Robert McNamara, the architect of the war, the main secretary of defense, the warlord from Ford Motor Company, the statistician of World War II bombing, he admitted or allowed that he had never known the history and didn't recognize that the North Vietnamese were really more of a nationalist movement than a mm -hmm. communist movement. And of course, Ho Chi Minh was there at Versailles in 1919, trying to meet with Woodrow Wilson. He cited July 4th uh, in trying to get liberty much later. So shouldn't we include uh, anti-colonial people like us in America as nationalists too, often from the left? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question uh, to tie it to a uh, more contemporary example that you mentioned earlier. People are like, why, how are the Russian, how's the Russian military doing so poorly? Well, they're not really fighting. They're, Putin has a bunch of propaganda that this is, you know, uh, our mother Russia against the Nazis. But it appears to be transparent propaganda that people will don't don't fully accept, even in Russia, uh, whereas in Ukraine, it's like a nationalism emerged almost overnight because their homeland was under attack, and it's not an anti-colonial battle; uh, it's a sovereignty independence battle. And whenever that's threatened, nationalism, nationalist spirit arises pretty heavily. And um, you know, I think I said, you know, from the left, uh, my my vision of it—that's I think the strongest—is what FDR tried to promote in the battles mm -hmm. for getting out of getting out of the depression and fighting, you know, the actual Nazis. And that was this, this understanding of the four freedoms, um, that our country, uh, is unique. It's not the only one, uh, like this, but we, we have the longest standing constitutional, uh, defenses of freedom and a comprehensive, de uh, defense of freedom, which is the individual rights side of it, uh, freedom, freedom of religion and speech, and then the more comprehensive, um, 20th century liberal notion of overcoming want, which means we shouldn't have people in poverty or uh, without work. And then, you know, freedom from fear, which is we should not be, we, we must defend ourselves from illiberal forces that want to take us down. And those were, you know, first the Nazis and the fascists and then the communists. And, you know, in the defense of that, that nationalism, that 20th century vision, there were times when the United States overreached. I mean, it, obviously, it made mistakes and miscalculations, huge ones. And, you know, so an effective nationalism also has to be realistic and not a, a solely moral or just something project. It has to be what at any given time are our values and how do we best defend them domestically and globally. And, you know, sometimes that might require restraint or 
uh, not taking an action um, or working better with somebody else. So that would be my vision for a an upgraded nationalism that's not so destructive of the world, um, which is clearly what we don't want. We don't want people everywhere deciding on the old exclusive version of nationalism and then fighting again everywhere. Um, we want people to stand up for their national interests, but recognize that we also have to get into the global arena to work with one another um, to advance common challenges, whether it's on, on extreme weather and climate or poverty or terrorism, um, cyber attacks, other things of that nature. So you can, you can have a nationalism that's more inclusive and tied to your domestic values, but also is cooperative in the world. And I think, again, that's the beauty of the FDR example, because they created the architecture in the 20th century for, for doing this. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, your point about the Ukraine situation, because I think that is for many people a bit of a clarifying moment if we look at it together. On the one hand, we have this sort of meretricious nationalism cobbled together from history text and mythology and his own isolation from Mr. Putin, and we can all read it online. It's a rather appalling mix of things. On the other hand, you have in Ukraine, Uh, including the fact they have a multi-ethnic country, which some people forget, Mm -hmm. Zelensky was able to elicit uh, what really appears to be a strong nationalist and in a positive way, tendency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's awful that it took uh, an invasion for that to happen. And I think the one thing you don't want or, or we haven't been able to figure out as a, as a global community somehow how to have a nationalism that's not tied to war. Right. I mean, that's, that's the downside of, of nationalisms everywhere is that they tend to lead to confrontations um, or internal strife that you don't want. Can you have a, a strong, but mostly peaceful and cooperative set of, of national sovereign interests? I think you have to, because it's, it's the way people think people have a hard time, can't get people to think about protecting somebody in another country unless they're a close ally or something like that. You, you mostly have to focus on yourself, but that doesn't mean you focus on yourself exclusively. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting about uh, Ukraine, obviously, is uh, the Ukrainians themselves are bearing the brunt of this invasion, but the world, particularly the Western world, has gotten behind them in a very strong way and uh, are enabling them to, to be able to continue this fight and hopefully hopefully win it. But I mean, I think the idea going forward is not to have nationalisms in constant conflict with one another, but to say, you know, it makes sense for people to pay most attention to their own country's needs, their own people's needs and their own values, uh, but then take those those needs into a cooperative global environment where we we fix common challenges, because obviously no one country can do it all on its own. And even though you need to build up your own domestic strength, whether it's on you know economic terms or military terms, things of that nature, you still need to work with others because we can't do everything uh, and nor should we do everything. And so I think the nationalism of the future, and that's what we hope liberal nationalism is, has learned the lessons of, of, of the bad excesses of nationalism in the 20th century in particular. Let's dig a little bit into one of the good points you've made about our history in the United States and the unique role, arguably, of our nationalism. There's always been a tension that goes straight through the national tapestry about can we be a republic 
a representative democracy and an empire, whatever that means. <laughs> and since 1945, the world order was set up by the United States in very unique circumstances. And we seem to move arguably beyond the city on a hill vision of being an exemplary nation of the type John Quincy Adams talked about that our power or Washington's farewell, a lot of our power comes through our connection, which is very real with the world and the subversive example we offer for tyrannical arrangements. And mm -hmm. how do we think about that today? Is it fair to say that the 1945 world order, which I think most would agree uh, has been very positive in many ways, but it needs to be updated. How do we think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question, uh, you know, especially with um, the the un unwillingness and the, the inability of the United States to serve as the world's policeman, to use a common phrase. It's not our job, although we have to step we have to step up in many cases, but we have competing modes of power in different places. And we have to, I think, I think President Biden's trying to do this, um, be a leading, if if not the leading um, partner in some kind of alliance of global democracies to defend common freedoms, uh, the rule of law, um, truth, rationality, uh, the basic ideas that undergirded the, the liberal international order that Roosevelt and company put together in the 20th century, we still need those. We still need to figure out ways to work with one another um, uh, economically, uh, socially, other ways, in, 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 in mutually beneficial ways. And the old order, you know, it's it's doing pretty well now. I mean, I think, you know, it's I think we're all pretty happy that we didn't want to expand NATO immediately, but it looks like Putin is, is driving it. I mean, there's still the the old order still matters from a, a security perspective. But clearly, given things like climate or just international trade and, and economics and the rise of China, we need to think differently about it. And uh, there are a lot of countries with a lot of people in the world, and they have slightly different models. And uh, the best thing we can do is not to impose that um, by, by, by empire type building, but to, uh, I think be an example, remain an example. And that means probably fixing our own house before we start lecturing other people. So, um, I think that's the, the primary challenge for the United States is to remain engaged in the world, a leading defender of, of democracy in the world, but to really recognize that our own democracy is pretty fragile right now. And, you know, we need to get our own house in order and and tend to the things that are eroding our own democratic stability if we want to even be involved as a, a leading partner in the, in the global side. I think the, the empire days are over. I mean, I think it's a foolish venture. It costs too much money. And, and as you see, as you saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, it doesn't work. You, you can't pull it off. And what did work was in a global arrangement. Um, uh, common interest and values with everybody having a role um, and, and participating in defending this. And I think we'll have to rebuild this and we'll have to do it in the face of China and Russia um, or other bad actors. But even within that, and you see this all the time in the EU uh, or even on this NATO fight with Turkey, uh, you know, it, there are people who are ostensibly in the Western 
world and the Western uh, democratic order who are a problem. And, you know, like the EU has to figure out how to deal with Hungary. They suck up a lot of money and then block things they want to do. Um, United States has illiberal tendencies, you know, that, that, that we need to figure out. And so I think the best thing for us to do for any country is to drop the empire notion at all and to focus on building the strongest country possible and then working with others um, on common defense needs and then, you know, other forms of, of cooperative uh, economics and, and democratic peace. Let me express something that I've heard from people in other countries about us on this question of empire. They would, of course, acknowledge that we are not an empire in the sense that term has generally been used in recent times with territorial occupation and the rest, such as in the 1800s, 1900s, that we broke away from ourselves. What they do talk about is that we've set up a, a group of systems to our own benefit in many ways through trade and defense agreements and the rest, and that we have what we might call an imperial mindset, that we accomplish many of the same things and have many of the same presumptions through how we use NGOs and the rest, that we uh, use them like as the new missionaries, that we aren't satisfied in this critique simply to offer ourselves as an example or to allow true diversity in terms of other governments that we try to create the world in our own image and to our own benefit. How would you respond to that? I mean, it's understandable that people say that. Uh, they, they, you know, they might be on the receiving end of some decision of the U.S. government that, that they feel doesn't, isn't good for their country or they've been ignored. Um, and you know, I, I think, again, the purpose of us having a strong international presence um, is first and foremost to defend our own interests, uh, but then to build a larger sphere of different but like-minded alliances and countries to basically uphold uh, an effective form of, of economic trade um, uh, and, and, and private sector activities that way mutually beneficial uh, security um, arrangements. Uh, and in, you know, in some cases, that's going to require the U.S. to deal with people who you know, we don't really like. We don't like some of their values. Or we don't like the way they treat their own people. But we don't lecture all of them all the time because we have a common interest in stopping some jihadi group or something of that nature. And I think you know, it, it may be difficult to, to sum it all together absent a, you know, an external threat like communism or, or fascism or something like that. But it makes sense. And I think um, uh, when people say to the United States, well, we, you know, we don't agree with what you've done here or that, or you need to do more on climate, you know, we should listen to it. But I think ultimately um, America has to be able to defend its own interests for its own people. First and foremost, it's like the old phrase, uh, you know, put on your own air mask before you help others like that. That's just a, an essential insight of, of a good form of nationalism. Like you're no good to anybody else if your own country is a wreck internally, uh, socially, economically. Um, and, and then, you know, once you solve that issue, your goal internationally is not to go around and interfere in everybody's politics, um, but to say, hey, we think our model of constitutional based freedoms, the rule of law, democracy, um, you know, transparency where possible. That's the best way to do it. And when we come up short, it's our duty to try and fix it. That's what makes American democracy 
potentially a real model is that, well, of course we fall short or somebody does something corrupt or something of that nature. The non-democratic nations or the non-liberal ones paper it over. And, you know, what, what America has to do is to confront, um, you know, its limitations or uh, errors and, and, and treat them in a transparent and open manner. And I think that starts to build a little more credibility with people. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that it's always going to work. I mean, I think there's lots of reasons built up over time for people to dislike the U.S. and its, and its particularly its military presence around the world. But at the same time, when something happens like uh, Russia invading Ukraine, you know, there's only a handful of people who can step up and uh, countries and the United States is one of them. Right. And and, you know, if Ukraine is successful to be it'll be uh, not just the United States is um, uh, role, but a, a big part of it, right? I mean, you know, Biden has, has stepped up pretty strongly on this at, and rallied those in, in Europe uh, to defend this nation that's not a part um, fully integrated in Europe yet. I think the UK is doing a good job and a former empire as well. And yeah, Russia won't like it, but that's, that's you know, that's Putin's problem. I mean, he made this decision. He crossed sovereign lines. Uh, he acts in a liberal manner. He had opportunities to behave differently, and he chose not to. So I don't think this us confronting Russia is a form of American empire. It's more, it's defending sovereign allies uh, and hopefully more fully integrated former allies down the road. Let's talk a little bit about the division of the country. Your fine writings at the Liberal Patriot, along with your co-editors, seems to have a theme of inclusion domestically, as you referred to the FDR settlement from 1944-45. Our politics are entirely divided right now. The two legacy parties, the Democrats and Republicans, are decomposing before our eyes, but they continue to have all kinds of regulatory, legal, and customary powers which they use ruthlessly and together when they need to, to limit innovation and competition from even third parties of the historical type we used to have. Thus, we end up with the occasional billionaire, these kind of vanity projects. Mm -hmm. And the partisanship is so negative. I talk out in the world outside of Washington, and I can tell you there's an awful lot of people who would tell you they have not voted for an American president in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven elections, depending on who they are, but they voted against somebody each time. And they often mm -hmm. vote against each party in a row. Thus, the kind of voters mm -hmm. that go from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden and so on. How do we get mm -hmm. out of this partisan poison, or am I stating a view that you think is misguided? No, I don't think it's misguided. I think uh, the one thing I don't think is practical is to, in the immediate near term, imagine alternatives that aren't going to happen. I mean, as much as I would like to snap my fingers and have a multi-party parliamentary system uh, where you basically can have smaller parties that have to combine into coalitions and make compromises, I mean, it, you know, intuitively, that makes more sense. It's an easier way for people to channel their differences and, of course, compromise. They're not all perfect. You could have unstable governments like in Israel and other places like that. Um, but the United States, for a variety of reasons that are, are very hard to change legally at the national and state level, we're not going to be that kind of um, uh, system anytime soon. So what we've tried to say is, well, how can we recreate the best ideas of multi-party uh, parliamentary democracy inside a two-party system. 
And so, you know, maybe we're pushing the rock uphill here. I don't know. But you have to get ideological diversity within the two parties. Part of the problem, the partisanship is so bad now, is that the parties have also ideologically aligned. So, you know, there it, there used to be liberal, liberal Republicans. There used to be conservative Democrats. There used to be moderates on both sides. Now, you know, it's much more apparent on the on the Republican side, but also on the, increasingly on the Democratic side. You not only have a party label, you also have a an assumed ideological one. And this is where most people tune out, because it's one thing if you're making arguments about universal health care or less regulation, which is a traditional Republican-Democratic divide. It's another when uh, you're divided entirely along identity lines, which is what's happened today. So these are irresolvable uh, differences and to put them in partisan and ideological terms is just deadly for for a successful inclusive nationalism parties working together on common national challenges and so as you said you know people either vote negatively against things they don't like or i think more importantly what we're seeing now is many people just tuning out altogether uh which further entrenches the extremists inside of the partisan uh divides as normal maybe more complicated, uh, complex thinking Americans just check out. They're like, politics is crazy, particularly at the national level. I don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, I'm not represented at all, and I don't want to sign up 100% for one vision or another because I have a party label or I don't. And so this is the challenge we have to fix because we can't overnight change the structure of the U.S. political system. But what we can start to do is build particularly through common projects and things. You saw it on infrastructure. You'll see it on some of the stuff on challenging China, even on you know support for Ukraine. Find projects that force people in the two parties to work together and put aside the things that drive everyone nuts to focus on a common challenge. That's what we've been trying to push because we don't think, you know, the political scientists may have a good argument for a different system, but we don't have a different system. And it's not like, it's very difficult to create a different system. It's not to say that those aren't good ideas. It's that they're not likely to happen. And if we don't want the country to completely implode in the near term, uh, the good, the good voices have to come together to find a new way. If we were to have a big surprise and the country by acclamation said, we're gonna put off the 2024 election and make John Halpin dictator for two years. What would John Halpin do? Just a few things that you think that you that a, a real president could do, but I don't want to limit it to the people's disappointment in the kind of presidents and candidates we've had for the past generation. That's why I wanna take it out of that. If you or yeah. FDR or somebody could walk in, what would you do like on day one? Well, I that's an interesting question. Well, one, I, I wouldn't accept a dictatorship. That would be my first order of business. But uh, the um, uh, it I, is know, just a hypothetical. Kind of, uh, yeah, it's just. No, oh, I got it. I just wanted to be clear for your listeners uh, that that I, you know, I think executive dictatorial powers are bad in general. I think we need more stuff done through congressional legislation and less through executive action. But the one thing I think a president could do that would be useful. Um, would be to come in with just like two or three main priorities that benefit uh, the the country as a whole and you know the least well off in the country as a collective class and just say this is all I'm going to focus on I'm not going to talk about anything else that drives people nuts in politics I'm just not going don't ask me my opinion on X social issue or what some governor did or what the media did I'm not going to talk about that the only thing I want to do 
is focusing on, you know, uh, diminishing regional economic inequalities, making sure we're ready to take on China, making sure uh, the government itself is reformed, is able to to work at its highest potential in the 21st, in the 21st century. Um, that's what I would want to focus on. And I think, you know, I, I think it could be done. And I think if you listen to Biden's inaugural address, he kind of hinted he was going to do that. And then it sort of fell back into the old ways. I mean, the first six months, he kind of focused on common themes, even though the, the American Rescue Plan was only passed with Democratic votes after two other packages had been passed with both both parties, uh, you know, and then trying to deal with the COVID pandemic in a, in a more effective manner. Um, but then, you know, it quickly sort of morphed into a grab bag of Democratic leftist priorities on the Build Back Better plan. And he lost everybody, you know, and he's and his numbers have never recovered. And they didn't recover after the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So, um, you know, maybe maybe Biden was naive when he, he gave his inaugural address. But I think Americans actually believe what he said and thought that's what he's going to do. Can he re- recover that? I don't know. I mean, once once ideas are baked about a, a president, it's, they're hard to change. Um, it might take the external threat of a possible Trump presidency to, to put Biden back in good standing. But it doesn't mean that Biden or anybody else or if, uh, hypothetically I'm the president, you know, can't really try to structure something new. Just say, you know what, I'm not going to engage uh, on the you know, the day-to-day culture war combat that defines everything in politics. I think it's dumb. I'm not going to do it. I think Barack Obama was very good at this. Like he was very, uh, he got, in, he kind of got ensnared in it, but he was adamant that he's like, I'm not dealing with crazy Washington stuff. I don't want to deal with media obsessions. Um, I'm going to try and focus on what's best for the country. And, you know, that eventually after a certain amount of time, the two party system chews you up and you've got to fight, right? At some point you have to, you have to get reelected or things like that. But I think that would be the best thing for somebody to do would be to come in uh, and just model a different politics. It, it can obviously be done. Like there, I, I live in Maryland and, you know, we had a very, it's a very blue state, but we had a two term Republican governor who was very popular, won a third of the vote in, in the city of Baltimore where I live, you know, which is as blue as they get. And, you know, Hogan had he's not, he'll never be a national representative for the Republican Party, given its, its Trumpist tendencies. But he at least exuded the right kind of thing. He's like, let's try and make let's try and find some common ground on things. So, you know, people may disagree with him from the left, but I, I think he he maintained pretty high credibility uh, in a state where most of the voters were of a different party there. You know, there are other people like that. Um, and I think we could, you know, look to see what those those leaders do. The other thing we can do is to look at the institutions of government that haven't been sullied, that are still popular, you know? So unfortunately, it looks like the Supreme Court is likely to lose a lot of its its legitimacy and credibility um, for, for, you know, acting like a legislature in some ways. Uh, but people still trust the military and the post office and, you know, a variety of different departments. And, you know, we should look at that and say, well, why do people like these? aspects of the U.S. government. So because they do things for people directly, they solve problems, you know, and if you look at the big companies that are successful, whatever people think about a union fight with Amazon, Amazon is a well-respected company, mainly because they do things that people want. And I think that's something that's just fundamentally missing in governance is, is to do things that people need and the country needs and do them well and push all the other stuff aside. Well, that's an excellent summary. A couple of quick things as we go uh, in the interest of 
recognizing governors of both political parties along the lines you mentioned. Another one might be Jared Polis in Colorado from the Democratic side, who seems also to be making uh, yeah. tremendous strides in a competitive purple state in a way that is not limited by interest groups that are so closely tied to one or other party. Yeah, Polis is, I mean, you know, I, I think he got a huge uh, increase in popularity for, for finding a, a pretty sensible ground on, on some of the COVID culture war fights. I mean, it's like, he's like, I don't know what else to say. He's like, get your vaccines. If you don't want to take it, that's on you. We all want to move beyond some of these mandates and, and get back to normalcy. And he's a business guy, right? So um, he also stood up to what DeSantis was trying to do in Florida on with Disney. He's like, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm like a libertarian on this stuff. He's like, I'm not going to tell businesses what to do on politics. And I think you know, that's refreshing. We've written a few posts. I've written a few at, at Liberal Patriot that what is kind of missing right now is a leave people alone movement. Like we need people to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to try and force my beliefs on you. What I'm going to try and do is work with you in some some cooperative capacity to solve some common challenge we have. I don't need to convince you to believe what I believe about X, Y, or Z issue. That's not the job of politics. The job of politics is to protect those freedoms and to solve common problems. And I think uh, to tie into some of the earlier discussion, the problem with the po political polarization today, it's like two different parties and, and movements all trying to get other people to bend the knee and to buy into their particular way of thinking on everything. And that's just not the American way. And so I, I do think we need a kind of live and let live sensibility, uh, leave people alone. And, and, you know, you see that pretty acutely on what will be this, uh, steadily um, nasty, increasing fight on abortion again. So that, that's just what I think. I think, and Polis kind of, you know, your Polis example, I think he kind of exemplifies that in some way. John Halpin, thank you very much. It was a great discussion, and I hope we can do this again. I think uh, we could be discussing this for a long time on the podcast, and we're going to be discussing it as a country for a long time going forward. So thank you for being with us, and congratulations on your fine Substack newsletter the liberal patriot that I would respectfully recommend to all of our listeners. I think you'll find it provocative and instructive. Thanks so much, Jim. I really appreciate you uh, reading the, the newsletter and, and having me on. Um, good luck. Good luck with all the future podcasts in your own, in your own newsletter. Well, thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners for being with us. Please send me an idea for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website at serptolead.com or subscribe at the next nationalism at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.